Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Many attempts have been made to reform the U.S. healthcare system, a system that is known to be fractured and needs fixing. What do we have to do to fix this important right, the right to adjust and equitable health care that is tailored to meet the needs of the people? Healthcare that is compassionate, cost-effective, and evidence-based. The pandemic has certainly revealed the flaws and further aggravated the already strained healthcare system. What intensity of activism do we need to make this happen? We need collaboration from all people, the public and the private sectors, institutions, health policymakers, economists, clinicians, nurses, to come together and work on a viable solution. We need to work for the common good. Today, I am pleased to highlight an individual who will offer his insights and vision for a nice blueprint for healthcare. We need people like Jeff and all of us to move this dial up and effect a much needed change. Jeff Fraser is a retired neurologist who practiced for almost 30 years in a large public hospital in the heart of Silicon Valley. Yes, the wealthy Silicon Valley. His passion for equity and diversity drew him to serve a population of immigrants, uninsured, undocumented, underserved in the Bay Area. He recently wrote a book, Blueprint for a Gold Medal Healthcare System. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Julieta. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am curious, what is your impetus to write this book? Well, I think the ideas for this book have been on my mind for many, many years. Basically, it has to do with finding myself somewhat dissatisfied and unhappy with the way we practice medicine in this country, particularly at this large public hospital where I worked. And when I retired, I finally had time to really sit down and think about those reasons for my dissatisfaction in a systematic way. And so I can quote you here from the very first paragraph of my book, and I think it sort of summarizes my position. I would like to show that book, by the way. There's the book. (laughs) You know, read some of the paragraphs that you want us to highlight. I can set the stage for our discussion today by sort of just pointing out some highlights from chapter one. So I begin my book by writing the following. I say, I am a physician and I am embarrassed by our healthcare system in America. It is unjust, inefficient, and way overpriced. The promises made by the medical industrial complex are often self-deluding and sometimes downright fraudulent. So that's where I was when I started the book. And as it happens, right around the time I started putting my thoughts down in writing, I came across an article in the New York Times. This is just about a year ago, last April. The article was written by Anne Case and Angus Deaton. And if your listeners are not familiar with this pair, they are professors of economics at Princeton. And they wrote a book entitled Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. 
Their book makes the case that economic inequality and social injustice in America are causing not only rising suicide rates, but also deaths due to increasing alcohol and drug abuse. And the article in particular that in the Times that I found so meaningful was sort of a follow-up thought to their book. And the article was entitled, America can afford a world-class health system. Why don't we have one? It says in their subtitle is, our system takes from the poor and working class to generate wealth for the already wealthy. And so then I go on and write in my book, I say, the authors describe in their article many of the injustices inherent in our system. Two major flaws eloquently elucidated in their article are striking to me. First is the subtle and not so subtle emphasis on profits, evidenced by the marketing of services and procedures that are expensive, but of relatively low value to the health of the patients. Second is the employer-based insurance system. Not only does this system place a hidden financial burden on companies and citizens alike, it all too often leaves patients uninsured when they need health care the most. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown a harshly critical light on this flaw. They conclude, we are, and here I'm quoting them, we are believers in free market capitalism, but healthcare is not something it can deliver in a socially tolerable way. So kind of one thesis of my book is healthcare reform is about social justice. It's about medicine for good. And again, I want to say I love the title for your podcast. It brings us back to what we're in medicine for in the first place. And so healthcare reform is about medicine for good, or in other words, it's about good medicine for everyone, not just for the privileged. Exactly. And certainly, as you mentioned, the pandemic has really revealed that major flaw, right? So it's always had been there, but it just further revealed it. With people losing their jobs and most of our healthcare system is driven by people being employed, like employee-based system, et cetera, and private sectors really funding this. It really made it so obvious that we are not delivering the best care that we could deliver granting of the wealth that we have in the United States. I mean, I go figure, right? So there should be a solution out there. So it might take a lot of activism from all of us to be able to effect a change. So tell me, in terms of the elements of what you and other people would like to propose, like a probable single-payer system with a budget that is universal, what do you think are the domains or the elements of a good healthcare system that is projected to be proposed in the U.S.? Yes. Well, I don't pretend to be the inventor of the solutions. And so this is a good time to make reference to the authorities that I respect and that I find compelling in their arguments for healthcare reform. And if I were to point to one person in particular who I think has the right answers, it's a physician and a healthcare policy expert by the name of Dr. Don Berwick. And again, your listeners may not have heard of him, but just to give you a sense, he's a Harvard professor, he's a physician, he's been involved in healthcare improvement for years. He founded a nonprofit organization called Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and he was appointed administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services back in the early part of Obama's administration. So he's well-recognized as an authority, and he talks about essentially single-payer, universal, government-sponsored healthcare, and he also is a proponent of what are called global budgets. And by global budgets, what that means is 
that you do away with fee-for-service care. Instead, you give a healthcare delivery system a global budget to take care of a certain number of patients. And when I think about that, I don't think about the VA system. I think more about an entity like Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente is not funded by the government right now, but it does take in money ahead of time. And with that money, they create a global budget. So they're no longer charging fees for services. Instead, they're trying to provide care in the most cost-effective manner. Now imagine that instead of employers funding Kaiser with this crazy employer-based healthcare insurance, instead they're funded by the government. So the government contracts with healthcare delivery systems like a Kaiser. And then that system is no longer, again, they're not run by the bureaucracy of the government. They are a nonprofit institution, but they're getting their money from the government, but they are free to deliver healthcare in the best way possible, which means they have to focus on high quality or else their outcomes won't be satisfactory. But they also have to focus on cost effectiveness because when they provide healthcare efficiently, then the doctors who work in that institution benefit because they are able to be compensated fairly for the hard work they do. Mm -hmm. So that's in a nutshell, that's the kind of system that I am attracted to. I'm used to it because I worked at a county hospital. I was on a salary. And so I was not motivated by providing more services. I got paid the same amount, whether I saw patients as often as I could, as fast as I could. And I didn't like to do that. I don't want to see patients every 10 minutes or 15 minutes. You need time. You need time to spend with patients if you're going to deliver compassionate care. I think that's a big complaint of doctors these days is that they don't have enough time. Now, the other side of this whole proposal is if you do away with all the administrative costs of our current system, I remember healthcare delivery systems that if you think about many of our healthcare delivery institutions, both nonprofit and for-profit, they have to have battalions of people working in their billing departments just to get money from the insurance companies. And there's this constant tug of war between the delivery systems you know, whatever system you work in and the insurance companies. So we do away with all of that in a model based on Dr. Berwick's ideas. And all those savings can be applied to actually adding value to healthcare. And by that, I mean, not only better services for patients, but a better working environment for doctors. So that again, in my ideal world, doctors have a little bit more freedom to schedule their daily work schedule. They can decide how much time they need to see patients. They can decide how much time they need away from the clinic or the hospital to create the kind of lifestyle balance that they need to be happy and healthy. That said, of course, there's a trade-off. If they choose to have a smaller panel size than your average doctor, well, they're going to earn a little bit less, but they have the freedom to choose. Yeah, I think sometimes the lack of autonomy and control of our lives that really contributes to burnout and further erodes the compassion that we could offer to patients when we drain ourselves from that. Self-compassion, perhaps the solution of more autonomy for physicians will impact the quality of life of physicians and providers in general. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I think just to make a little bit of a point, I think doctors, like most people, are afraid of change. And on top of that, they are so busy that they don't have too much time to really give thought to this problem. And they're taught to be focused on the individual patient. And so maybe they don't think about health on a global scale as much as I wish they did. So at the end of my chapter one, I make the following point. And again, I'd like to put a quote in here if I could. Yeah, Um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. 
Physicians and healthcare providers are taught that they have a sacred moral obligation to care for the patient in front of them. That obligation may still be primary, but providers also have a moral obligation and a sacred trust to consider the well-being of society as a whole. For thousands of years, patients paid physicians and shamans out of their own pocket. Now, however, the society pays for healthcare one way or another. Therefore, the society as a whole deserves the full attention and solicitous care of the medical profession. As it stands now, when individual patients want care, they feel entitled because they have already paid the cost through premiums or taxes or both. And doctors who decide on what care to provide have little or no incentive but to please the patient because, as we've talked about, their income and their job security depend on it because they work in a system now of some sort. It may be nonprofit, but we talked about how there are administrators looking over their shoulder these days mm-hmm, to make sure mm-hmm. that they're having good customer satisfaction surveys. So doctors have all these incentives to please the patient, but not enough time, energy, or incentive to think about what's good for the society as a whole. And so decisions that are made in this context are often not based on good science. We need to establish incentives or regulations to ensure that doctors only do for the one what science tells us should be done for all. That's why, as you said in the very beginning, it's about social justice. It's about evidence-based medicine. It's about doing things the right way for scientific reasons and not in order to generate revenue or to seek more profits. It's about doing the right thing for everyone. I love that. I love that comment. So tell us about the push and pull between pleasing your boss or the healthcare system as opposed to pleasing the patient and where evidence-based come to that. For example, there are a lot of gray areas in medicine, right? So there's not the true black and white as most people would think that we have all the answers, but probably most commonly than that, we don't have the answers. And we are on that gray zone and It's now a tug of war between like, would I want to spend an hour of this calling the insurance company to authorize this procedure that you don't even believe in that the patient needs, but the patient needs that and they feel entitled that they need that. Like for back pain, right? So back pain is one of the most common problems that a clinician will be faced with, pain, pain control. They had it for a long time and now they are insisting that they need that MRI, that MRI. MRI, that will be the answer to their lingering back pain over a year. And you feel that, well, you know, from hearing your history and doing a careful physical exam, neurological exam, and all of this, that there's really no point in doing that MRI now. What we need perhaps is maybe refer you to physical therapy and try that and just do some watchful waiting. Well, the patient doesn't want to hear about that watchful waiting, right? So what do you do? What do you do then? That's a great example, Julieta. So thanks for bringing that up because that's an issue that we come across in neurology all the time. And in fact, as you know, back pain is such a common problem. It's a problem that gets seen in primary care all the time. And then it's seen by arthritis specialists, orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, neurologists, physiatrists. So it's something that most of us are familiar with because sooner or later, 
often sooner rather than later, someone shows up in your office with back pain. So here's how I look at that. And again, there's so many aspects to a patient who comes in expecting an MRI scan for their back pain. First of all, getting back to the point made by Ann Case and Angus Deaton, our medical industrial complex is very good at advertising treatments for back pain, among other things. And they create an unrealistic expectation in the patient's mind that there are solutions to back pain out there. The fact of the matter is, if you read the academic literature, people agree that we don't have good treatments for back pain. And when I say we don't have good treatments, I'm talking about medicines and surgeries, okay? In fact, we do have treatments for back pain, and that includes physical therapy and a host of interventions that don't rely on drugs or surgeries. But patients have been conditioned by our healthcare culture to expect quick fixes, where they don't have to play the role of being an active participant in their care. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go to physical therapy for six weeks and then hear, well, you know, if you want to really take care of your back, you're going to have to do these exercises for the rest of your life. They would like to get a fix. And that's human nature. I understand that. But the problem is that our medical industrial complex feeds into that desire for the quick fix and they create unrealistic expectations. And so the patient shows up in the office thinking the path to recovery starts with an MRI scan. The problem there is we know that if you take normal people off the street with no back pain at all, they will have abnormalities on their MRI scan. That's been well documented. Our low back is subject to wear and tear from leading a normal human life. And we develop little bone spurs. You can call them different things, little disc bulges, little bone spurs. And radiologists, when they make the report, they don't necessarily make that point that this, these are kind of normal findings. What the patient hears is, oh my gosh, I've got a disc bulge or I've got arthritis in my back. And that just, again, leads them down that path to thinking they have a disease of their back when in fact they have a normal back. The other point that we understand now is these abnormalities that we see on MRI scan often have nothing to do with their pain. The source of the pain may be in their muscles and the ligaments, things that don't show up on an MRI scan. So what I find myself having to do in talking to those patients is basically un undo all the misinformation that they've received through the media. I have to explain that surgery is absolutely a last resort in almost all cases, and that the results of surgery are very uncertain. I have to point out that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are perfectly good treatments. That's one thing that we can offer. They are anti-inflammatories. I know they've worked for me when I've had back pain. <laughs> However, I can't take non-steroidals anymore because I had some intestinal bleeding. So, you know, there are risks, and people forget about about the risks. But beyond the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, a lot of the medicines that have been proposed are just not really that effective. And then you get to the opiates, and that's a whole nother story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But let's not forget that our current opioid crisis began about 25 years ago when doctors were bamboozled by the spokespersons for the big pharma. And these spokespersons went out and told doctors, you guys are under-treating chronic pain. Again, I'm not talking about cancer pain. That is different. But talking about non-cancer chronic pain. We were told you're way under treating it. These newer opiates, the, these newer opioid medications are much safer. They're not addictive. You don't have to worry about addiction. We were literally told that. And now 25 years later, we're looking back and we're going, oh my gosh, what have we done? So that's just a perfect example of so many things wrong with our current system. But you have to explain to patients, you know what? We don't have an easy fix for pain in general and back pain in particular. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. But a lot of chronic pain is very hard to treat. And the quick fixes most of the time just aren't there.
Well, sooner or later, the person also believes like when they get a report on their MRI that they have degenerative spine disease or something. So that's the basis for them to feel that, yeah, they are disabled. Now I have a reason I am disabled. So their brain talks to them and say, I'm disabled, so I can't work. And, and so that really ruins people's lives. But how many of us would have time? The real problem is the time to explain all of this with the patient, right? That would take you about an hour of your time trying to undo what the other clinicians have told the patients, to undo what the x-ray or what the radiologist reported on the system. I think in order to have self-preservation, you ignore all of that stuff that you have to do to take care of that particular patient because you have another 15 patients waiting in line for them to see that day, right? Absolutely. So, and you know, you just reminded me of a very good point that I think, here's something that a goal mental health care system would have. Back pain, as an example, is so common. We deal with it over and over and over again, and we find ourselves saying the same thing over and over and over again, and it's time-consuming and we don't have the time. Why aren't there more education classes, group classes for patients with back pain? I know that some systems do that, but I don't think we do that enough and do it in a real comprehensive and energetic way. There should be a real energy behind educating patients further in a group setting where it's cost effective. Why don't we do that? One reason is it's hard to charge patients money for classes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we live in a fee-for-service system and insurance companies often decide, well, we're not going to pay for you to give a class. What do they do at Kaiser? At Kaiser, where they're on a global budget, they know that in the end, it's cost effective to do more education. Mm -hmm. and, and more efforts on also not just education, but prevention. Preventative care. Yeah. That's preventive care is not well compensated. Treatment exactly. is. So we talk a lot about precision medicine on like what fine tuning that we could do for a therapy of sort. Those are small population. We can't even control hypertension and diabetes. And those are the low hanging fruit, right? So if you look at the data, hypertension and diabetes drives one of the highest mortality for cardiovascular events, right? But we can't even control it. It's so easy to diagnose. It's so easy to treat. But why are we not able to treat it? Right, right. That's um, a very good point. Again, I hear my colleagues in primary care have said, it seems like there should be a more efficient way of delivering the care to those patients with diabetes and hypertension. Why aren't we, again, using group visits with nurses to monitor their sugars, monitor their blood pressure, continue to give them encouragement? Why do we make patients go see the doctor on a one-on-one -on -one basis and have to go through the same process one-on-one -on -one when we could do it in a group setting much more efficiently and we could use nurses? Exactly, exactly. Get those patients in once a week. You can't do that if you're doing that one-on-one -on -one as a doctor. You don't have the bandwidth. Mm -hmm, but you mm -hmm. bring patients in quite often if it was done in a group context with nurses when appropriate. Yeah, and you know, that's just one of them. The other part is like you talk about mental health, right? We have a lot of support to taking care of the physical body, but not too much effort on mental health, like as if it doesn't exist, as if depression, fear, rejection, and loneliness are not out there. The pandemic has even aggravated those, you know, mental health issues, but there's not much effort in terms of approaching that, preventing it, giving sessions to people, giving more support to people. So I think with the new healthcare system, hopefully there will be more focus on prevention, education. 
Absolutely. No, I think you're right. I don't think mental health care gets enough emphasis and definitely in a public hospital type setting, very hard for our patients to get adequate mental health care. I just want to circle back to a point you made a moment ago. Patients get their MRI scan results and they see the conclusion, degenerative disease of the back, that sends such a negative message. And actually, there was a study that looked at that. And they said they took one group and they gave those patients the results of their MRI scan. And in the other group, they didn't actually give them the report to read. The group that actually read the report of their MRI scan walked away with a much lower sense of well-being. All the report did was increase their negative thoughts about their health. It increased their sense of, let's say, hopelessness. Now they've got a chronic disease of the back that the doctor can't fix. So I think healthcare in America puts so much emphasis on disease and not enough emphasis on wellness. So we're creating these negative images all the time in in patients' mind, and it increases their anxiety. And again, we're talking about mental health issues. So we, we should take a hard look at how our efforts to focus on disease and finding problems is counterproductive in terms of patients' mental health. We should be emphasizing what they can do to promote their own wellness and how we can help. And that begins with one big aspect of that is giving them access to counseling to adequate mental health services. Yeah, I think we as doctors should also be educated in how we send messages to the patients. Like I struggle with my template on sending messages to the patient because like internists order a lot of tests, right? Invariably, all those tests will show variation from normal. And a lot of patients like our worried well patients would look at that 0.4 difference from normal as abnormal, right? Because it's flagged as abnormal. And I I. Cr- this template, like I would say, it is not worrisome, right? But then if I ask myself, well, what's worrisome for me may not be worrisome for another person. So we have those different thresholds. And what's clinically significant for me may not be, may be clinically significant for a patient. So how do we judge that? And how do we send messages to the patients that are a lot more positive, that will promote more of their wellness and sense of well-being rather than the presence of disease? diseases and abnormalities. Absolutely. And I I think that's right. We need to focus on the positive more than we do. And another way to address this issue is when you're seeing a patient in your office, I'm sure you know how often you get that sense when they seem to be worried more than you are. That's a great time to ask the question. Tell me, tell what me worries what you? it is you're worried about. I want to understand what you're worried about. And I think that's a great opportunity to let the patient open up. And sometimes you learn something very helpful when you ask that question. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the advent of electronic medical records, it's not unusual to see a physician walks in and basically confront the computer mm-hmm. <laughs> and type away there with no eye contact with the patient, just right typing away what the patients is telling. And I'm actually blessed because I don't type very well. So I have to look at the keys. So I push away the computer and I talk to the patient basically face to face. And my effort is really just listening to the patient. And it's so fortunate because I cannot type and at the same time talk to the patient. So so that's an advantage. So talking about now electronic medical record, tell me about the advantages of the electronic medical record, how we could have an integrative system that is health institutions and clinics could access so we could basically promote the same practice guidelines, et cetera. 
Yeah, well, that's a very good question. I'm very interested in the electronic medical record. I'm very optimistic about how it's going to improve healthcare eventually. But as I point out in my book, the problem right now is the electronic medical record has been designed largely with the goal of maximizing revenue capture. And so doctors are compelled by the billing departments to fill in their note with all kinds of data and make sure they ask this question, that question, because that's how you can bill insurance companies for the maximum amount. And the doctor's notes wind up being cluttered with information that other doctors don't really need. It's just very redundant. Many times it's just dumping data from elsewhere in the electronic medical record into your note so that you can prove that, oh, yeah, I reviewed this MRI scan. Many times, I'm not sure we actually do review those pieces of information that we dump into the note. I think I'm guilty of that too. You can program your note to automatically import data from other sources, as you know, and it creates sometimes, to be honest, something of a dishonest appearance that you've reviewed all this data when in fact, first of all, you know it's not really relevant, but you're expected to fill your note with all this data. So anyway, that, that's one complaint. I think the electronic medical record is being misused when it emphasizes uh, revenue capture over information and communication. I think the electronic medical record could be a, a wonderful way for doctors to communicate better with each other. I remember for years, even decades, being told by people who were in the know of about what's wrong with healthcare. One of the things they, they would say is doctors practice in their silos too much. They sit in their office and they see a patient, they write a note, and maybe the doctor who referred the patient will read that note, but maybe not because we're all busy. And we don't get paid for communicating with each other. We don't get paid for reading other doctors' notes. Our schedules are too busy, even though that could be the very single most important thing we could do for the welfare of the patient is to understand what the other doctors have been doing with this patient, what they've been saying. Now I get it. It took me a long time to understand that. But I think we're still in this culture of practicing in a silo mm -hmm, because there's mm -hmm. no financial reward for really looking through a medical record and finding out what other doctors are thinking. But it could be a tool for communicating with each other. Think about tumor board. Tumor board came up decades ago because cancer patients are very complicated and you need your radiation oncologist. You need your surgeon. You need your oncologist in the same room thinking about a patient and deciding the best treatment. But we don't do tumor board as much as we should because meetings like that are too time consuming. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. the electronic medical record could be a platform for virtual meetings very easily. And they could be virtual meetings in real time, or it could be a platform for sharing thoughts in your off time. And you may not be all doing it at the same time, but you know, you set aside time to read what other doctors are thinking about this patient, what they recommend. And when time allows in your schedule, you go to that thread. It's just like an email thread that we're all familiar with and you share your thoughts. And so mm -hmm, there's a dialogue mm -hmm. that goes on outside of real time. I call that the virtual tumor board model. At least at my hospital, we didn't take advantage of that yet because again, there's nobody rewards you for doing that. Yeah. I think now there might be a little change because we do a lot of that e-consultation where you send an e-consult to psychiatry, to neurology and stuff. It's just a device for us primary care physician because we cannot know it all. So we send questions to the expert and they look at our notes, they look at our images and pictures and say, well, this is what I think it should be. And then that would be a time 
family connection that we could give back to the patient as well from experts with us, with the input of their primary care provider. So I think that will be a useful tool in the future for our use of electronic medical record and e-consultation. And then now what we have discovered also is the value of telemedicine, right? So it's not that we have to see patients face-to-face in all of the encounters. So I think it should be a hybrid between telemedicine and face-to-face encounters. So what do you think of the future of telemedicine? I love it. Again, I'm very optimistic about its future. Again, the problem is how do you charge for it? How do you decide its value so you can convince the insurance company that it should be treated just like any other consultation? I'm a big fan of e-consults. Just as you're familiar with it, we have instituted that at our hospital. One problem, though, is we do get some resistance from primary care because our primary care doctors are so swamped, they really don't want to have a dialogue sometimes. They just want to send that patient to the neurologist and be done with it. But I really think if you give support for it to the institution and you support primary care doctors for using e-consults, acknowledge its value, it can be a learning opportunity for the primary care doctor. And if they're given enough time to follow through with the recommendations that they get from their consultant via e-consults, then they can have the satisfaction of implementing the treatment themselves. I'm hopeful about that. Telemedicine, the same thing. Telemedicine is not just a way for a patient to connect with a doctor. It's another way for doctors to connect with each other, sometimes in real time when the patient is in the room. But how do you bill for that? If you've got the primary care doctor and the patient in the room, and you've got the neurologist via telemedicine, who gets to bill for that service? You see what I mean? But it's crazy. If it is fee for service, but if it's a global budget. Under a global budget, with a global budget, you go, hey, is this adding value at lower cost? You bet it is. So it's worth (laughs) if it's a global budget. And yes, I think another thing is as a young doctor coming out of residency, I don't think we get enough mentorship. I think the idea is, oh, you're done with residency. You're on your own. You don't need us. You don't need any help. That's completely wrong, especially as medicine's gotten more and more complicated. I remember coming out of residency and oftentimes when I met with a patient who has a problem I don't know the answer to, I felt like a fraud. I felt like I don't really know the answer, but I'm not comfortable knowing who to ask. And I think we need to change that culture. I think telemedicine would be great. You could have a a younger neurologist has a problem, depending on how things shake out and what your capacities are, you could get that expert neurologist or the older neurologist and consult right there. And there's no shame in that. It's like, yeah, what do you think? And you get that kind of mentorship that I think young doctors would really appreciate. I think that would go a long way, again, to alleviating burnout because they Mm -hmm. don't feel like they're alone. You're right. Telemedicine means to bring doctors and patients together in so many ways so that you feel like you're working as a team rather than as an individual in your silo. I echo that. Yeah, thank you for stressing that. And then we're actually at the end of our session here. And I'd like you to share some take-home points to our listeners. Well, again, thank you again for having me on your show. I suppose it's become clear that I'm passionate about this issue. What I like to think is a take-home message. As I said earlier, I think doctors are afraid of change and patients are afraid of change. And that's pretty much everybody. (laughs) Some of us, for example, those of us who have joined Physicians for a National Health Plan realize that the change is going to be worth it. And what I'm trying to do in this podcast today and what I've tried to do in my book is to point out reasons to really believe that change ultimately will be for the good and to give people the courage and the incentive to advocate 
for reform in our healthcare system. It can very well be a painful process for many. Change is not easy, but it's going to alleviate so much pain down the road. And I would say that especially to young doctors, they may not have found out yet how hard it is to practice for the long term in our current system without burning out. And give change due consideration. I think healthcare reform in the end, patients will get better care. They'll be happier. They'll be less anxious about their health. Doctors will have more confidence that they're doing the right thing and that they're practicing medicine in a truly gold medal system. Thank you for that message and complimenting the messages for medicine for good. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for your time. Thanks, Julieta. Have a wonderful Bye. day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.